Chemical City Double Reeds is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Hey, oboists. Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes F. Loray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox Products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Howdy, partner. Hey there, you little <laughs> girl. Get along, little doggy. I don't know what that was. How are you? Fine. I'm feeling a little slap happy, to be perfectly honest with you. It's like that time of the semester, I feel like I'm wearing a clown suit and a cowboy hat and <laughs> spinning plates. Wait, what's slap happy? You've never heard of slap happy? I mean, maybe I have, but it's, it's, it's meaning like is vague to me, I guess. It's like when you're tired but you're also hysterical. Oh, okay. It's like out of control. Like things are too funny and you're not making any sense. Like a delirium. Yeah. <laughs> it's a delirium. That's exactly what that delirium. Okay. Well, we love that. <laughs> Maybe playing a game is good for your slap happy attitude right now. Okay. You know what? I'm into it. I'm into it. So tell the people what we're doing for today's dish. We are playing Would You Rather. Have we done this before? I feel like we might have, but this one is so good. I don't even care. I feel like maybe in like the height of quarantine, you know, when we did those things on social media to kind of let people have fun, but they didn't ne- we didn't necessarily talk about them on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder yeah. if there may have been a Would You Rather game. But um, yeah, so we came up with these Would You Rather questions. You're being very generous saying we, by the way. <laughs> you came up with these Would You Rather questions. Well, listen, to be fair, we are having to stockpile some episodes as I've referred to before, because I'm going on vacation for like a month. Uh-huh. So I feel like I should have to share the brunt of the organizational responsibilities because I'm going to check out of my life for like three weeks. <laughs> so I'm okay. I'm slap happy to take it on. You know? <laughs> so the first question is, would you rather have the ability to make perfect reads or have the ability to play without getting nervous. What do you say, Galit? Okay, I'm going to go 100% make perfect reads. Really? Yes, because number one, having a perfect read makes me less nervous. And number two, nervous can actually be good for a performance. Well, see, I'm the opposite. (laughs) I would rather have the ability to play without getting nervous because if you're not nervous... Who care? Like, if you have a bad read, you don't care about that because you're not feeling <laughs> nervous. Not being nervous takes away all emotion. Also, I feel like the caveat of would you rather, it's just imperfect read. So that's not like an F failure of a read. That could be like a 98%. Yeah, but depending on the repertoire, a 98% of a read is still not good enough. But I'm not worried about that because I'm not getting nervous. <laughs> Well, for the record, our wonderful listeners by far agreed with you. Thank you. Uh, 74% said perfect reads. 26% agreed with me, the few and the proud. I just love being right. (laughs) 
Okay, Jackie, would you rather have the ability to play as fast as possible or have the ability to play as long as possible? I don't know. I'm a little bit torn. Listen, the bassoon does not have the resistance level of the oboe. Like, I feel like if I was an oboist, the answer would be very clear. Y'all's instrument is like blowing into a closed fist. (laughs) Um, So if if I was an oboe player, I'd say endurance is the obvious issue. Um, On the bassoon, I don't know, especially I love some flash and trash. (laughs) So maybe, and we've got all that thumb stuff going on that can get in the way. So maybe some Beethoven four that Figaro so much of our life is just like, okay, how fast? So yeah, final answer, technique. Mine's definitely going to be endurance because <laughs> I don't like playing into a closed fist. If I, listen, if I had easy endurance, if that were not a challenge for me, I could play so much more repertoire. Mm-hmm. It's, you have to be so strategic about it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because Instagram gives us a, breakdown of 50 50 on the results Ooh. however i can see that technique got 101 votes endurance 103 so technically endurance is the winner though this is pretty much a 50 50 split that's cool i would be so interested in the breakdown on instrument although mm-hmm. i can see that there are some oboe oriented usernames that did choose technique so Maybe those people really love Pasquale. <laughs> I'm not judging. I'm just saying. It's true. It's true. Okay. Would you rather, this is a bit sadistic of a question I came up with, yeah. I guess. Would you rather have to play with chapped lips or with a headache? Chapped lips every day of the week. Why? Well, I can't stand a headache. I'm such a baby. Also, the back pressure on the oboe, if I have a headache I, and I'm playing the oboe, I feel like I'm dying. I I agree. Headache as well. Or wait, I would not want to play with a headache and would prefer mm-hmm. chapped lips because I find chapped lips, like maybe it's a little painful, but mostly it's just that it feels weird and yeah. what comes out sounds normal. It's yeah. just like, ugh, I I hate this. Like it gets to that point in like late fall where there's like the thick layer of uh-huh. skin and it, uh-huh. yeah. And you feel so self-conscious. You're like, mm-hmm. everyone's looking at my lips. It doesn't feel normal. But yeah, to play with a headache, a lot of times I just won't. Mm-hmm. If I have a choice, I won't. Yeah. Like, uh, I could practice an extra hour or I could acknowledge I have a headache and not. I could just wait for the ibuprofen to kick in and then come back to it later. Thousand percent. And mm-hmm. the listeners agree with us. 69% to 31% would choose to play with chapped lips over headache if they were flutes though it would be different i think i think a flutist would rather play with a headache well we don't care what they think get out of here flute (laughs) would you rather have to sight read a concert or have to play a concert on someone else's reads see okay here's trivial pursuit about me um as you all may have guessed at this time i'm very type a i'm very organized i'm not afraid of work and so i will do what it takes to learn what I need to learn. I can learn pretty much anything. I'm a slow practicer. Having said that, my Achilles heel is sight reading. I can't sight read to save my life. I fall on my face. I don't know if it has to do with like my brain and I I just can't digest it. And I feel overwhelmed and I short circuit. And anytime my least favorite part of playing chamber music is when people go, let's just get together and read stuff. I'm like, I think I have a headache and can't play. (laughs) My lips are a little too chapped today. I don't know if I can play. Like, please no. you'll see my vulnerable underbelly. And (laughs) so I'm the worst sight reader ever. Give me someone else's reads on music that I know. What do you think? Well, I would rather sight read because... I don't normally like other people's reads unless they're like easier than what I play. I tend to play like a super light read setup. So I, I think I would rather say read a concert. Honestly, I tend to do better on the first go around than the second. 
I know tons of people like that. Yeah. Like I tend to be more accurate on the sight reading. And then if I'm starting to like actually learn it, that's when I start making mistakes. I'm so jealous. Yeah. I mean, it's not, I'm not a great sight reader, but I think I'd be better at sight reading a concert than playing a concert on someone else's reads. I'm just the worst. Although in terms of reads, bassoon reads, I feel like have more forgiveness than noble reads. That's probably true. What did our listeners say? They said 59% would prefer to sight read and 41% would prefer to play on someone else's reads. So slightly favoring really, the really sight close. read, but they're a little torn. Mm-hmm. Ooh, this next one is really hard. Would you rather perform in a venue that's too hot or perform in a venue that's too cold? Um, I was thinking about it and I think cold. Neither one is ideal. Physically, it's annoying intonation-wise. It's annoying. But I feel like I'd rather compensate for the stuff that happens when it's cold than I feel like when I'm hot, I'm just kind of stuck festering mm-hmm. in the heat. I don't know. What do you think? I would agree. Number one, because I have a plastic top joint. So cold doesn't scare me. (laughs) (laughs) Number two, because I played, I remember playing this rehearsal in a church and somebody had complained uh, about the air being like too aggressive. So they turned it off completely. And my read blew up like a balloon and it was miserable especially in those humid environments yeah so i think yeah too cold for sure well the listeners disagree with us 57 percent would prefer a hot environment and 43 would prefer the cold so again they're still pretty divided i also had the experience once of the the hall was really cold and one of my pads just popped right off my whisper keypad popped off yesterday, not because of temperature, just because it was a bit having a renegade moment. And uh, <laughs> so we're going to get that fixed. <laughs> All right. Last question. Would you rather perform only early music for the rest of your life or perform only new music for the rest of your life? Mm, I'm going to say new if I had to choose. I like both, but. I think new music is fun and exciting. I would also choose new and I do not like both. Well, I have, (laughs) I have the utmost respect for early music and early musicians. I know I've admitted before that it's not the, like, it's not a strength. And because I know there's such strong expertise in our field within that avenue, I feel like such an insecure moron mm-hmm. when it comes yeah, to I a totally lot of early that. stuff I totally get that you're like oh they're judging me yes <laughs> is this the right type of ornament are there too many know. are there too few help <laughs> it's not an urtext I'm sorry <laughs> it has an editor <laughs> well the listeners slightly agreed with us uh 54% said they would prefer only new music 46 though going with the early and again i i'd be interested in the instrument breakdown on that if we yeah because your early music is a lot of continuo that's right oh that's another reason other than my <laughs> beer yeah let's go with that instead That was such a good game. Thank you for putting that together. I love that. Yeah, that was so much fun. If you have other would you rather questions you want us to play, send them on in. Maybe we'll do another round in an upcoming episode. Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's get into this interview. Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reads, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B flat key. 
all are maintained by OBO-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. excited to welcome Kemp Jernigan, who teaches oboe at heart to Double Reed Dish. Welcome to the podcast. Hey guys, it's great to be here. We always start the same way. We want to know what brought you to the magical world of double reed playing. So how did you start on the oboe? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, I started in the band, like most other kids. Uh, Where was I that? started on Where- the saxophone. Where was that, Kim? That that was uh, at uh, so I went uh, to school in Gulf Shores, Alabama, <laughs> and um, sorry, I'm, ignore, I, I'm ignoring Galit. <laughs> Before we got started, everyone, I promised Kemp I would make fun of him from being from Gulf Shores, Alabama. I'm just kidding. I love you. Keep going. She warned me. It's true. <laughs> I knew that was coming. Um, so I went to school proudly in Gulf Shores, Alabama, <laughs> and uh, I I started I started in the band in Gulf Shores Middle School in sixth grade. I played the saxophone, and um, and I had heard a rumor that there was you're going to like this, Jackie, that there was a bassoon being ordered that the band was going to get, and I really wanted to play the bassoon. This is a real story, actually, and. Um, I had asked the band director if I could play the bassoon and he was like, yeah, absolutely. You know, actually there's, um, while, if you're interested, while, while we're waiting for the bassoon to come in, there is an oboe here. Nobody's playing the oboe. And it's just so funny. One of those random things that you decide to do when you're like 12 years old, you know, it totally changes the course of your life. Like on a whim, I just thought, well, I don't know. The, the oboe is just there. You know, why not just play it? It's kind of fun. Nobody else is playing it. I felt kind of special. And uh, and so that's that's how I got started on the oboe. Completely random. By the way, I never got to switch over to bassoon, in case you're wondering. Did did the band director hide the bassoon once it came in? <laughs> we got someone proudly... on the oboe. We don't need him on the oboe. You know, he proudly gave it to one of my one of my best friends. We're still really close. And uh, it was, uh, it's very sad. I always say that I'm like, I'm a bassoon player trapped in an oboe player's body. (laughs) (laughs) So Camp, what happened after that? What got you interested in being a career oboist? That's a great question. You know, I, for me, my journey was a little um, wandering. I grew up in a really musical family. um, Although nobody, uh, was a, a musician, you know, for a profession. Um, but uh, my parents are both really musical. We have ex- a lot of extended family. Um, all of them, you know, play different kinds of instruments. So for me, I always grew up around uh, musicians and music lovers, um, people who just love to either play music or talk about music. It was always around. I had no strict classical music upbringing at all. That was never something that my parents uh, necessarily uh cared about one way or the other. Um, I think they just recognized at, at an early age that I loved t- to play music. And so they kind of pushed me to go, go down that path. Um, I, like I had mentioned, started off in the band. And then my parents, a couple years later, were like, well, you know, they're both from Mobile, Alabama. And there was like, you know, th- there's, there is still a youth orchestra there. And, and um, they thought, you know, why not audition for this youth orchestra? And so I auditioned, I got in. And all of a sudden I was kind of playing in this youth orchestra in, in Mobile. Um, and I think uh, that certainly exposed me to a lot of different, 
I mean, to my first real orchestral rep, you know, which I just didn't have a clue about. I'd never played with strings before, obviously. So that was kind of my first taste, uh, just, uh, I think, playing uh, classical music at all. Um, for me, growing up, I played other instruments, and I was much more into, uh, you know, playing guitar and, and, you know, with my friends and singing and writing songs. And that, that's, what I, that's what I really loved to do early on. And for me, playing the oboe was something that was really fun, but it certainly wasn't my identity in any way. Um, most of my friends in Gold, at Ghost Rose High School didn't even know that I did it. Um, I went over to Mobile and played on, you know, uh, on Sunday afternoons in the youth orchestra. And it's like half the time, you know, nobody even knew that I was doing it. So the way it kind of evolved was I thought that I could potentially go to school somewhere in a, maybe a different geographical part of the country. Um, in a way, it was kind of my ticket to to go do that, to go see different things or to go have different experiences. It wasn't necessarily because I was dreaming about uh, playing the oboe when I was 14, 15, 16 years old. So that's how it got started. Um, and then uh, I don't believe, I don't even know if you, I don't know if I mentioned the story to you about how I met Luke Lucarelli originally, mm -mm, mm -mm. but so um, about midway through my kind of, you know, high school years, um, by, you know, we, I started to kind of think, you know, maybe I could try to go to school to play the oboe. I, and again, I, you know, I did growing up in Gulf Shores, I didn't really have a ton of exposure outside of playing in the youth orchestra. Now that is how I got to meet Patty Malone, um, who you certainly uh, knew quite well. Um, and so I would kind of go and, and take lessons with her here and there over at Hattiesburg, or sometimes I'd meet her before or after a, you know, a, a mobile symphony um, rehearsal. And so I was able to rack her brain uh, a little bit about, you know, who to contact or, or to try to go take a lesson with, but I had no clue what I was doing. And, and that was really um, sporadic in terms of when I was really able to, to have those kind of lessons. So it was really up to me and, and to my parents to try to figure out what the heck to do. So I thought that if I sent a recording of my playing to just a bunch of different teachers Maybe I would hear something back. I mean, because at that point, I still had no idea how I compared to other kids that who played the oboe outs outside of <laughs> Mobile. You know, I just had mm -hmm. no clue. And quite honestly, I didn't want to waste their time. So I uh, made some kind of a recording, you know, made a CD at that point. You still mm -hmm. made CDs to send them, you know, to, to mail them out. And I remember I mailed them to a bunch of teachers. I just looked up, you know, my parents and I were just like looking up teachers all across the country. And I think there might've been a handful that, uh, that got back to me. And, and, and one of those people was, it was Bert Lucarelli. And I, the funny, funny way that I, I even got to know about him, it shows you how much I knew at that point was I was literally Googling oboe teachers because I had no clue what to do. And, and, and what resource? I, I didn't have one. I mean, it was just totally by chance. And this one name kept popping up over and over again. And my mom and I started to kind of laugh to ourselves. And we're, I, I remember us kind of being like, maybe we should just email this guy. Like, who is this guy? You know, he just named, his name kept popping up. And um, I sent him, sent him an email uh, and uh, mailed him my, you know, CD of my playing. And he was one of the very few people that got back to me. And, and I didn't even, you know, how can you possibly appreciate it at the time when there's just so much you don't know at mm -hmm. 17? But when I think now to how busy he was, um, not just with students, but he was still playing, mm -hmm. to even take the time to listen or to respond to an email at all. Um, with each passing year, it means more and more. And, and that wasn't something that he just did that one time. I mean, he, you know, uh, that was, that's such kind of a, um, I mean, that's just who he, who he is. Uh, obviously, you, yeah, obviously, you know that. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's how all of that happened. I just started off in the band. It was, and so many things happened kind of by chance. Um, and you just, I was lucky enough and still am obviously to meet, uh, people who really supported me and, uh, and continued to do so um, and really showed me early on how those relationships are so special and, and vital uh, for, for what we do. I love that. 
So the uh, oboe was originally kind of a, a ticket to see a world bigger than you'd been exposed to, but somewhere along the way, the decision to pursue a professional path uh, entered your mind. So can we hear about your training, educational journey, and uh, deciding to pursue oboe professionally? Sure. Um, so really, by the time I got, so I, I guess I didn't mention, but I studied with Lucarelli at heart. Um, from for my undergrad and I had made it through it was probably about a year or a year and a half of you know this is maybe midway through my sophomore year and and I remember Luke Relly really having a pretty pretty stern conversation with me just being really frank about how I, I really wasn't improving nearly as much as I should be and and he was right I mean I I think I was enjoying living in the Northeast and kind of exploring and being in college. And I just, at that point, I had other priorities <laughs> to be quite honest. And I remember after that conversation, I went home for winter break that year of my soft, sophomore year and, and really kind of um, having a, a conversation with myself about this was kind of a moment of a, a turning point one way or the other. In terms of, am I really going to do this? Because if I do, I really need to be serious about it for the really for the first time, um, or it's time to you know maybe make some decisions and, and go in different directions. So um, for me, I um, I mean, I decided to go for it. I think also too the idea of him being disappointed in any way was just so upsetting. <laughs> yeah, like I think it's like with a parent or grandparent or whoever, somebody who you love so much. I mean, the idea that they could be disappointed in you, it was just you know that was that was so difficult, and I never wanted to feel that way again. So that was part of it. But I remember over that break, I started thinking like, okay, maybe I should look into like summer programs, and you know, maybe I should really try to get this thing going. And so this is kind of another moment that just like happened totally by chance and. And I think some of these moments happen because I just didn't know enough still at that point to know, like, should I even apply for this or not? But I applied and, and got into the, when it was still happening, the the Banff um, masterclasses uh, in, in, in Banff, Canada. And uh, at the time, uh, uh, Richard Kilmer was uh, was running the, the oboe portion. Um, and I remember thinking, again, shows you how much I still knew at that point. I was like, that sounds like a great place to be for three weeks. <laughs> that sounds really beautiful. And, oh, that would be really nice to, to study, you know, with him for three weeks. And um, so I just sent in a tape and I got in. And I remember thinking like, oh, I I got into this place. Like, <laughs> okay, you know, but that, that moment really was the turning point for me um, because I came back that semester uh, in the spring, this is spring of 2010, really focused I got into that festival and then that summer for me really kind of changed everything in terms of just how I approached playing the oboe and, and, and how I thought of myself and, and kind of really thinking like, okay, I really want to try to go do this. And really that was because I was exposed really for the first time to um, just unbelievable obo oboe playing. And, and these kids not only were just fantastic, but they were just, they were so great. They were just great people. And so for the first time I could really identify with other kids who were about my age, who were leaps and bounds, obviously, um, above me in terms of just the, the level. And so it really gave me something to aspire to. Um, and that was really it for me in terms of the kind of the hook, you know. And so um, from there, that's kind of, uh, that was the green light for me. And, and uh, you know, and I was able to, to kind of keep up with them, obviously. And those are friendships that I still have. But I saw what they were doing and what they were accomplishing, and and it was so exciting for me to kind of watch, and I wanted to do that too, and and so that was really that that was a turning point. But you know, everybody obviously has a different point where that happens for them, and for me, that was when I was twenty years old. You know, which for mm -hmm. most people you would consider that to be you know relatively old in terms of making that decision. Um, but uh, for me, it was a long journey to to get there. But um, but I was happy that that it just came at the the perfect time. Um, what happened after uh, Heart? What was your journey post graduation? Yeah, so I, my senior year, um, I thought, okay, I've improved X amount. I've kind of crossed these th thresholds in terms of summer programs. I went to Banff the next year. I was at uh, at Norfolk. 
the Norfolk Chamber Music Festival, that kind of like the Yale Summer School. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm crossing these thresholds. I started to kind of um, create these thresholds to cross, to prove to myself that this was still a good idea. And I felt like I was going in the right direction and I really wanted to go to a serious master's program. So I applied uh, to the top master's programs and got rejected by all of them. And that was a really great lesson because I remember getting to May of my senior year, everybody's graduating. All my friends are going on to grad school or wherever else. And I remember being like completely lost, completely. I had never faced rejection like that. And this was after I'd kind of given myself this permission of like, okay, like really commit to this. And then, and then all of a sudden, like, I'm like twiddling my thumbs in May trying to figure out what, (laughs) what am I going to do? So, um, basically, and this is kind of a timing thing. Lucarelli had been teaching at SUNY Purchase for a long time and he had just retired from there. He was leaving. And I remember having a conversation with him where I was quite frankly trying to figure out what to do. And he was like, you know, there's this guy who um, is going to start teaching at Purchase in the fall. His name is James Austin Smith. And I think you'd be a really good fit. Um, he's young. He's just getting going in New York. Um, and I think you would like him a lot. Now, I had met him a couple of times because he's from the area and he came uh, to to Hart a little bit to give a couple of classes. So I, I knew him. But um, I went to New York, had a lesson with him, loved him and thought, well, I mean, I, <laughs> it's not like I have, you know, uh, all of these options, you know, for the fall. Um, not only that, but this, this feels actually uh, like a really great thing. And so um, I went to SUNY Purchase for what they consider a, it's a performance certificate, which is in between undergraduate and, and a master's degree. Mm-hmm. And um, that was the, uh, the best thing that could have ever happened to me um, for, for a multitude of reasons. But, um, the, the first thing is that that was my first time studying with a teacher who was, I mean, he was just in a totally different phase of his life. He, he had just really started to get going in, in New York. And, and when I say get going in New York, I mean, he, he kind of was playing everywhere. Um, and I could really relate to him. He was kind of the cool older brother that I had never had. And, and I just thought he was, um, such a great person and a great player. And, and he was just really motivating for me. And I went in that year and I told him really what I was wanting to accomplish. And, and in terms of getting to, you know, a, 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 you know, getting to graduate school. And, and so he and I were really on the same page and that was the most productive year of school I had. It was amazing. And I, again, growing up in Alabama and now living at that point, I was in Westchester, which was purchased is only about 30 minutes or so North of, of New York city. So for the first time I was able to be exposed to everything happening in New York. And that degree doesn't have a lot of, you know, there's like no really academic rigor to it. It's really about coming in and, and, and kind of honing what you're doing. Uh, and so it was a lot of playing. And so I had a lot of time. I had a lot of time to go see uh, all different kinds of performances and concerts and um, meet all different kinds of interesting people. And so for me, that was such a stimulating year. Um, but, uh, but getting back kind of to that original point, which was, I mean, it was the best thing that could have happened to me because... I had never faced rejection like that in my life. Mm-hmm. And at the time wondering, I mean, just wondering about a multitude of things, but when I could get to the other side of it, and then years later realizing that that was the best thing that could have ever happened to me simply because I grew so much that year. I think also too, like having explained to you guys kind of like where I grew up and, and, and my uh, classical music upbringing or like thereof, I was probably a year behind anyway. Mm-hmm. So I think I needed that year. Um, and I really ended up kind of confirming this too, but um, I, I really needed that year, I think, to develop, um, I, I think, a little bit more. And um, and James has been a, a confidant of mine and somebody who I feel really close with. And um, and that year, I mean, that I met uh, Tar Helen O'Connor, um, who's an amazing flute player in New York who runs the, um, the, uh, the division uh, the classical division at heart and I'm uh, sorry at purchase. And she's the reason that I got that job um, uh, to, to teach at purchase. So uh, totally by chance, totally random, a moment in time that I thought like everything was going wrong. And then it seemed like that was the perfect thing for me. And with each passing year, it, it proves that um, 
that it was the right thing. So from there, I, I ended up going uh, to Yale for grad school, um, which was amazing. But I, fi I finally made it there. It was kind of a uh, convoluted journey, but but I, I did make it there. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that, because um, at the time, it was probably so incredibly painful and putting myself in your shoes, I would have been so upset and felt so lost and confused and disappointed. And, you know, it just seems like rife for existential crisis. And you took it and you turned it into the best thing that could have happened to you. And kudos to you. That's such a, that's a testament to your great attitude. Well, I, um, it was hard. I mean, there's just, there's no way around it. It was really hard. But I think, I think now teaching at Purchase and teaching at Heart and having students who inevitably go through difficult situations and inevitably, uh, you know, go through rejection like all of us do, I'm able to talk about that particular moment in my life every year with at least one student. Mm -hmm. And to explain that that's, that kind of rejection or that feeling Number one, it's universal, right? It happens in mm -hmm. all different kinds of fields, all different kinds of people. But um, I think that it, it it also is just, it's a part of, of I mean, <laughs> being a, a person. Um, also, of course, in our field, we just face a lot of rejection. It's just part of what yeah. we do. And at that point, it felt so foreign. I had never experienced that before. But um, But you start to realize as the years go on, that's just kind of a part of getting where you need to be. Um, and, and I think that that comes obviously with age and experience, but it always makes me feel good to know that I can, I can talk to so many students every year, um, about that and to kind of, it's not just lip service, you know what I mean? It's like, I've really done this. It's not just me saying like, oh, that's okay. It'll get better. Or there's something like that. That's slightly empty. It's, I can say, no, this actually has happened to me. And, you know, I can explain to you, you know, why it was the best thing that could have happened or, you know, or something along those lines. And it makes me feel really good that like that moment in time for me continues to kind of be used for, for good. Um, because I think that's really, you know, important. Jackie, do you mind if I share uh, the the advice you gave me one time after I screwed up royally in a recital and I called you afterwards? Go for, go for it. I don't remember what I said, but <laughs> so I was really upset. I like had made this incredibly awful mistake in a recital, and I called Jackie afterwards. I was like, "Oh my god, I can't believe I did that!" And she said. <laughs> I was like, this is the end of the world. And she said, no, you, we wear perfection and perfectionism, like a backpack full of bricks. And you just took a brick out of someone else's backpack. And that's what you do too. Like you took this like thing that really hurt you in at the time. <laughs> And you turned it into a way to like lighten the load for other people. That's a great way of, I, I, I never really thought about it that way. Um, but I think that's a really great way of putting it. And I think also too, right? Like if somebody, you know, like if a student was talking to me about some kind of rejection that they were experiencing, you know, me at, at 32 would laugh thinking of like, I would be like, this person's like 22 years old. Like you're, you're just getting going. Like, mm -hmm. you know, like, and so it's, but of course, you know, when we're going through it, you know, it, it obviously is a much bigger deal to, to us. It's our life, you know, mm -hmm. but, you know, to think about like feeling that way at 22, it's like, there's, I mean, you have your entire life ahead of you. Um, but I remember uh, getting to that point. And then honestly, uh, again, leaving grad school, it, it actually, in a way, is such a freeing moment because you feel like anything at this point, moving forward is possible. You know, there, there's a freedom, I think, to when you when you do go through that and these kind of um, certain goals that you have set that maybe you don't reach, you have to re you have to reset and find new goals or maybe it's the same goal, but it takes a little bit longer. There is a freedom to that when you're kind of knocked off path a little bit and then you do have to get creative in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there is beauty to that. Um, it's not the easiest thing that we go through, but I do think that it, it's in a way it's vital, you know, to, to our, our development as people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. And I agree with you, Galit, that it's so important for us to discuss, especially from the other side. Like I remember being in school and one of my studio mates was being very ambitious in applying for uh, graduate study and it, you know, someone acknowledged, you know, that that's really ambitious. What, what if you don't get in anywhere? And I remember he said, well, if I, I can't get into these schools, then I'm not viable as a professional and I should find something else to do. And that's, that's literally what he thought, like, oh, this is a test of a litmus test of if I can do this. And it's like, yeah, you look back from the other side and it's like, no, there's so many that, you know, also like maybe there's no openings or, you know, this, that like, there's so many things that factor into that. And yes, we can write such significance that's not there. Or even like you said, if it's there at the time, it just means not this right now. It doesn't mean like, no, not you. This isn't for <laughs> you. And so I, I think it's so important for us to have these conversations because someone's listening you know, and it's March, the letters are starting to come in and someone's mm-hmm. listening right now who's at least wondering. And, I, you know, yeah, I think yeah. it's really good. I, I applaud your vulnerability and sharing that with us. But you did get <laughs> to the other side. So can you hear about um, embarking on your uh, professional journey and how you got to where you are today? <laughs> that was a beautiful segue. I was wondering I how you were going it's, I was like, do we go darker now? Or like, yeah. just, yeah. Having you heard how profound I am, I, I make great brick backpack metaphors. Yeah, I know. I'm like, if we could just take a moment, let me stare out the window for a few minutes and just think about all the things you said. Um, so um, I, when I, so I did eventually end up going to Yale and which was wonderful. And, you know, in a way, actually, that was kind of a diff- funny enough. I actually, not every moment in my life was difficult, but, but getting, getting, I remember getting there and starting. And in a way that was actually kind of a difficult moment because I had spent so long trying to get to this specific place and then being there. And I remember kind of like processing that and then realizing like, Oh, a master's degree is two years. <laughs> like I got through like most of my first year and was like, Oh my God, I'm like graduating in a year basically. And kind of going through this whole, you know, existential crisis all over again and figuring out, okay, what am I, what am I doing now? You know? And, um, but I did uh, kind of early on start to pick up some work in New York a little bit. And this was from friends of mine who were a little bit older than me, who, you know, the way it goes, just, you know, randomly giving somebody your name, um, or putting your name on a list or something like that. But I started to kind of um, play here and there with different groups and, uh, and and meet new people. And so, you know, all of my teachers were people who I wanted to emulate, not because they were my teachers, because but, but just because I um, respected them and still do so much, just as people, but also the way they created their kind of their own particular lives and careers. And whether that was Luke Corelli, whether that was James, whether that was Steve Taylor, um, I just uh, admired them then and admire them now so much as just kind of, yes, as oboe players, but as artists. And, um, and, and so I wanted to be like them, I mean, quite frankly. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm picking up work a little bit in New York. Um, I think I want to give this a go for a little while. And this was kind of one of those moments too, where I thought, you know, if this doesn't work out, you know, I can go in a different direction, but I really want to see if I can give this a shot. And my um, my wife, uh, who's um, we're the same age, she graduated grad school at the same time as I did. This was to put dates on this. This was spring of 2015. And um, of course, you know, I'm like no help in terms of geography and like where we're going to go. And she, my wife is thankfully not a musician for the record. She's a school psychologist. And um, so we met in Connecticut. We met at University of Hartford, our, you know, our freshman year. And and so she got her license in Connecticut. And we thought for sure we would stay in Connecticut. It's just like what we're going to do. And then we subletted an apartment over the summer. Weeks are going by. Weeks are going by. Still aren't sure. And then she she gets a job in New Jersey. And I was like, oh, <laughs> New Jersey. Okay. Well, I hear New Jersey's <laughs> beautiful this time of year. Let's, let's move to New Jersey. <laughs> so... She's also, she's from New Jersey for the record. So like for her, this was not a shock. But for me, this was quite a shock. Um, going to Jersey. 
Yeah, I mean, I know this is an audio medium, but if you can hear my, just hearing my voice, this does like not um, seem like a natural fit for a New Jersey. <laughs> um, but uh, but here we are seven years seven years later and about to raise a child in New Jersey. So this is, that was what I dreamed of growing up in Alabama. Um, so, you know, we moved to New Jersey and and all I really wanted to do was just be close to New York and to pick up work when I could and to see if I can do this. So this was kind of another threshold for me. It was like, okay, let's see if I can, I mean, this sounds really funny, but like, let's see if I can pay my rent by playing the oboe. I want to see if I can do that, which guys for the record, like suburban New Jersey, rent is quite high. All right. So that, <laughs> that was a, that was a lofty challenge. You know what I mean? It wasn't, yeah. I mean, it was, it was, this was hard. I knew this was going to be hard. <laughs> and I think, um, I got, I was really lucky because of these people who were looking out for me. Yes, my teachers, but also people who I have met along the way. And, um, and so that first year was super tough, obviously. Um, and, uh, there were lots of kind of starts and stops, but, um, that was a, a pretty amazing year to all of a sudden kind of be existing in New York and just to be picking up work and everything was so new and you're meeting so many kinds of people and, and playing all different kinds of things and, and, it was just a really beautiful time. And it was scary, obviously, because you're thinking like, am I, after all of this, you know, school and studying and work, like, is this really going to happen? But I think for me, number one, I just loved the idea of kind of existing in this way um, and having this kind of life in, in, in this area. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I just, I love a good show and New York's just the ultimate show, you know, like mm -hmm. at the end of the day. And, and, um, and so that's what keeps me, keeps me hooked even now, but, but yeah, so it was total leap of faith. I remember like having a candid conversation with a confidant about like, I think I'm going to move to New York and, and, and try to give this a go. And then being like, maybe you should like, you know, start a like a doctorate or like, you know, like to have some safety net, like have some community and which I totally understand now looking back, like why they would recommend that. I mean, obvious reasons. Um, I think for me, I was just at a point where I really wanted to prove to myself if I could do this or not. Um, and I got really lucky because there were people out there to kind of look out for me and still, still look out for me. Um, and, uh, and so that's how that got started. So I was picking up work in, in while I was living in New Haven, going back and forth and then kind of just took the plunge and, um, and started picking up work and, you know, things, one thing leads to another. It's kind of crazy how that happens. So freelancing seems like such a, like multifaceted skill set. like, you know, logistically, interpersonally, networking, um, all that type of stuff. And I wonder if you could, you know, kind of talk about your experiences or, um, advice that you have gained along the way for, you know, making it work it, by um, investing in many different areas uh, in building your career? Yeah, I mean, that's the great, that's a great question. And the kind of ultimate question, I think, when it comes to this particular way of, of, of existing, um, I think that um, to put it as simply as possible, I think, um, and this isn't to say that I have mastered this by any means, but this was good advice. I think that I got years before when I was still in school and, and um, what I really tried to remember and live by, but, you know, I can say from my, from my perspective, when I play with people with colleagues, friends, whatever, you know, you just, you want to play, obviously like it's great to play music at a high level like that that is certainly always the goal for for all of us but you know you also want to play music with people who you love to spend time with like freelancing also is like touring like who do you want to travel with like who do you want to be in tough situations with early mornings late night um stuck in traffic you know, like, yes, of course, it is about the playing and, and playing as, as well as you possibly can. But in, in, and this isn't just with freelancing, this is just our, I think, our um, way of life in general. Uh, it's also about, you know, we're in the, we're in the people business. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we interact with people every day, not just if you're a teacher, but, um, but as, as musicians, how do you, how do you interact with people in, in rehearsals? I mean, the, the, it goes, it, it, the list is, it's endless in terms of your interaction with 
people, how do you make people feel? Because yes, of course, like, again, getting back to the plane, like that always has to kind of speak for itself. But most of the time, like, if you maybe don't play as well as you'd want to or whatever, like those things eventually even out, but it's like, how do you, the way you make people feel lasts forever. And I think that at the end of the day, that will separate you from other people mm-hmm. to be able to play well, but also to, I think, be somebody, a, a colleague who people want to be around. That's a beautiful thing. And that to me, looking at all the people who are really, I think, successful, um, they have that quality. And, uh, and that's, that's not a, that's not a coincidence, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So can I take a left turn and ask you about your read making? Oh God. I knew it was coming. This is a double <laughs> podcast uh, after all. Yeah. I guess. <sighs> read making. Do people still read, do, read make reads? Is that very um, yeah, I maybe this someday. Well. Kemp, Kemp, will you just like, so, can you be in charge of like AI read making? Can we do that? Oh my God. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. I think the way to start out is if you could send me all of your reads first, um, I'll get back to you. I, all I need is like five a month, and that will be yeah. great research. <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't ask we don't ask for much. We really don't. We're we're simple people. <laughs> what's your what's your read making setup? What's important to you in your reads? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I think that um oh gosh, where do I begin? I think that the, the first thing is, you know, the northeast the 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 uh, the weather is constantly i mean the the pendulum of of weather temperature humidity dryness is from it goes from one extreme in january february to the other in in august mm-hmm. so i don't i don't i mean it's literally like 100 degrees like no kidding it's it's unbelievable so i think that you have to be able to and this sounds really obvious but to be able to make reads in different climates like period. So I think that you have to be able to adapt and adjust accordingly because mm-hmm. it's constantly changing. I mean, today is what, what's the date guys? The 16th, mm-hmm. March 16th. So it's, it snowed yesterday and it will be like 80 degrees in the next six to eight weeks, like uh-huh. for sure. <laughs> right. So like this is, it's changing all of the time. So I think that that's kind of the first like general thing that I always have to keep in mind. And it was a big, uh, adjustment for me when I moved to the Northeast all these, you know, all those years ago. Um, I think that obviously, you know, I mean, I certainly need stability. <laughs> you know, I think that like I have to have something that I can really work around in, in that way. If I'm fighting it, um, you know, I, I, you just exhaust yourself. So mm-hmm. I think that's, that's kind of the first thing that I'm looking for. And Galit, you and I obviously are cut from the same cloth. So I think that in a lot of ways, I think I'll probably end up repeating stuff that that maybe you've you've certainly heard from teachers over the years. Please do. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah. So I mean, that that's really the first thing, and in terms of you know what I'm thinking about is stability. I mean, I think that I also, and this is I'm not saying this is right or wrong. It's because I usually am trying to beat traffic or go somewhere. I also, full disclosure, don't have a lot of time, so I have to be extremely efficient in in what I do. So I also have to make reads very quickly. I have to make them very <laughs> quickly. Like earmuffs to people who like, you know, I shouldn't be hearing that, but it's true. I sit down and I, I need to make a read. You know, like I just need, I need to do it. I may, maybe I have a day off or two days off, mm-hmm. whatever during certain times of the year, like right now, like there's just, and you guys know, and there's just like, there's no time. So like yeah. you have to be super efficient when mm-hmm. you have the time. Part of my policy is just making reads as often as you can, like, you know, newsflash. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like yeah, I'm, I'm here all day for groundbreaking news, you know, but it's like, <laughs> but it's true, but it's true. You know, like, I think that, I think so, some people truthfully are gifted read makers and I, and, and I am not one of them. I have, Me so either. I, so the only way to keep up to make sure that I'm keeping up is to just do it as often as I can. Mm-hmm. Like, so if I don't, if I don't shape cane for a month, I'm saying I never go that long, but like a few weeks and I go back to it. I'm like, 
oh my god, like I'm just destroying it, or, or you know, or like I yeah. come back to if, if I made reads in a couple of weeks and I come back to it, and my my knives are weird, and like I'm just you know, it's like everything gets thrown off. And some people I know never skip a beat, but I, I can't do that. I can't. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's just about I think staying extremely like regular with my you know with with read making and um making sure that I'm kind of being conscientious with that. That seems to solve the problem here. Now, again, it doesn't always, uh, that isn't always possible. But for me, I think that's something that I kind of segue into with teaching, which is, you know, I, I, obviously you guys know this even better than I do with students who, I don't know, they're navigating crazy schedules, maybe for the first time in their life, and they come to it into a lesson and they're like, oh, I just, I didn't have any time you know, this week to make reads, or I haven't had any, I haven't had time in the past two weeks to like really do any kind of remaking or practice or whatever. And I don't, I mean, I'm, I mean, as you obviously know, like I'm not one to scold anybody. I, but I do, I use my life as an example of like, look, I'll, I'll tell you what I, what I have going on right now. And this is how I'm navigating through that with practicing and read making. Not to say that like my life's harder because it's not. It's simply to say that like this actually doesn't like this schedule that you're navigating. It doesn't get easier. Like not in a bad way. It's just like let's let's kind of sift through this now because this is what, what part of being a musician's like. Because you, I mean, mm-hmm. this is how this is how it is. And I think that when you're kind of going through school, it's like people focus a lot on how many hours a day are you practicing, but we're not talking as much about like how are, are you practicing the right way are you making like you're devoting your read making time the right way you know so it's kind of about doing it the right way mm-hmm. um but but re- anyway regardless uh I, I i try to use that in teaching to help students you know kind of learn that i go through this too i still go through this all the time and it's about i think being kind of really good with the time that that we have mm-hmm. yeah can you tell us a bit about the Sound Mind Ensemble? Oh yeah. So so truthfully, Sound Mind hasn't played in a little while, but I but we love each other very much and we're we're together all the time. So but the way this started really was um we're all really good friends. So uh we just wanted an opportunity to play together. Um, you know, I think that's usually how the best groups start, is that you just love being together you love spending time together you love playing music together you love doing things together and i think i admire that group and those people who make up that group so much um they because they're brilliant they're talented they're funny um they're people who i want to be around and and who I, you know i want to constantly learn from that's how that got started. So it's, you know, if you like look at the, at the website, or if you see videos, you know, it, it is a, um, it, it started out as, as a wind quintet. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the goal has always been, and will continue to be to make it more of a collective um, with a kind of more, uh, you know, flexible roster, which you certainly see a lot of now that's like not necessarily, you know, um, uh, a new idea, but I think for us to be able to have, um, I think a, a rotating roster of people uh, to be able to play all different kinds of, of repertoire and in, in all different kinds of setting that, that that's always been the goal. Um, but that, that really is what that group's about. It's about really good friends being together and playing music. And, um, and I think that, you know, that is always, that usually leads to longevity um, and, uh, and, and when I see, you know, what, what those, you know, what my colleagues in that group are doing now, um, and continue to do, uh, they're just amazing. And it just reaffirms why I love them in the first place, you know, um, because they're all just doing such amazing things. Um, they're great. Plus our, our text chain is kind of amazing. So that's really, that's really the, the biggest benefit. <laughs> Can confirm. It's fun to do things with your friends. Yeah. Yeah. Write that down. I find it very <laughs> overrated. <laughs> I quit. <laughs> I'm gonna, this is a good time for me to just let you guys go. <laughs> we need to talk to you about something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is our last double read podcast. Anyway, uh, <laughs> back to you, Camp. Um. <laughs> um <laughs> Can you share with us a favorite memory from a past performance? This could be like a meaningful memory or like maybe like a hilarious memory or. 
Yeah, that'd be great. So I, I mean, a couple things come to mind. I'll, I'll do the more kind of um, professional memory first, and then I'll, okay. I'll, I'll end, I'll end it with maybe a not, not so professional memory, but um, <laughs> so I had survived uh, my first year like existing in New York city and out of nowhere, like a lot of my life is like a, a random email will kind of just drop out of the sky from somebody who I don't know, asking me to <laughs> to do something. And I'm like, Oh, I'll do that. You know, I'm free. And I um, got asked to this. So this was, this would, this would be spring of 2016, May, June touring with the Orpheus chamber orchestra in japan which Killer. i never played with orpheus i never played with orpheus and i i certainly had never been to japan so i got to tour japan with orpheus for two weeks and i mean i just remember i'd never toured period anywhere much less japan <laughs> this sounds very low stress to me this sounds it was so low stress <laughs> It was so easy, guys. That's what I'm here to tell you. <laughs> and so I remember, like, I, I made it through the first, we, we, there were rehearsals for like two weeks in New York before this tour happened. Like, I make it through the, the, the two weeks, you know, relatively unscathed. And I, you get on a plane in JFK with the orchestra and you're, and it's like 12 hours later, you're in Tokyo, literally. And I just remember like, I mean, there's not a whole lot I remember about the first few hours because I was so jet lagged, but I remember still being jet lagged and like trying to like get myself together. Um, and I remember walking, you know, they gave us like a, a day, you know, to kind of like pull ourselves together. And then that's the, the second, that night, second day that night, we had our first concert. So you're walking out at you know, the stage in, you know, in Tokyo, looking around at this like packed place. I'd never played with Orpheus at all. So you're jet lagged, you're in a totally different country, you're playing with a group that you obviously just want to play super well with. Oh yeah. And guys, there's no conductor. <laughs> so I can't just like glue myself to the conductor because they're not there. So I remember like also this is a good story. It sounds like traumatizing. It was amazing. But I remember that first night, like sitting back in my chair because I thought I was gonna fall over. And I was like, so I was totally freaking out, but, um, that it wasn't maybe necessarily one performance, but the entire tour, I think was just like, it's just one of those points where it, I mean, it totally changed. Um, I mean, it changed my life. I remember thinking when I midway through this tour, there was so much uncertainty in my life. If I remember thinking, I still don't know at this point, if I'm going to be able to have a career doing this, but like, this sounds so cheesy. No one will ever be able to take this moment away from me. Yeah. And yeah. I just remember thinking, no matter what, no matter what I end up doing in my life, I'll I'll have this. And that was such a beautiful moment because we go through so much doubt um, and wondering uh, about all different kinds of things in our lives. And I just remember this one beautiful kind of experience on a human level. Not even, I take the music totally out of it. Just being able to, again, as my ticket to go see different things. That was kind of a prime example of, of being able to like go all over, you know, I mean, literally from one end to the other in Japan and to see that country. Otherwise I'd probably never would have gone, you know, and um, that to me was transformative. And I still think about that tour all the time, actually. Um, I was able to go to Germany actually before, before COVID which was like fall 2019 um, and do the same thing. Uh, and, uh, and so, um, but yeah, so I think that, but that particular trip was like totally, totally blew my mind. I still can't believe I got to do it. On a much like funnier and lighter note, last week, um, you can tell I've really evolved over the years. Um, I was playing, so I'm, I'm a uh, like a, a co-artistic director of this group called the Exponential Ensemble, and we had a concert last week. And again, very good friends with the people who also run this group, and uh, the. There's a clarinetist who started it years ago. His name's Pascal Archer. And um, a great friend of mine, and he's one of the funniest people I've ever met. And we were playing playing a piece, and it's a really 
big moment and we're it's like flute oboe clarinet piano and we're really going for it and he goes to cue it's really loud and he just squeaks so loud and i started <laughs> laughing so hard so hard and like in this again like i don't laugh at people when they when they crack a note by the way just for the record let the record show i don't do that but it's because he's so funny that like that's all it took and then of course it was immediately followed by complete silence which (laughs) and i just want you to know that i had to literally stop myself i was gasping for air. I was laughing so hard and I had to turn, you know, we're like in a semicircle and my, the audience was to my left and I literally had to turn to my right, which of course was towards him. And, and to literally, so the, so the audience wouldn't see me laughing because I was, I've never done that. I was laughing so hard, like horde. And, uh, and that was uh, last week. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, what advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? You know, for me, having really concrete goals that I could visualize helped. I think everybody's certainly different in terms of what obviously motivates them. For me, I think being able to really visualize things that I'm hoping to accomplish. It doesn't mean that I obviously that I'll, I'll, I'll get there, but I think having that kind of visualization every day um, has been amazing. I think at the same time, being really open to the pleasant surprises that come along, because I think at the end of the day that, well, number one, that's a big part of, of, uh, of what I do constantly things that are kind of dropping out of the sky and, and adapting quickly, but also that's like what makes life interesting and, and beautiful and, and fun. And so I think it's a mix of that. I think to like understand kind of what you're going for and really um, visualizing that, but also being really open. And I think sometimes like, that's always kind of a funny thing to me. I remember this as a student, but now like talking to students, like they certainly are very committed to like something that they want to do. But I think that what ends up happening that they need to work on sometimes is like being open to other like ideas when it comes to just like their life and mm-hmm. career. And I think that sometimes just comes with uh, that just comes with time. But I think if you can, some of the most successful people I know are the people who are the most adaptive. Mm-hmm. So yes, we've certainly on this, you know, um, uh, latest edition of Double Redis, we have talked a lot about resiliency, which of course is, um, I think the ultimate kind of, uh, um, quality that is helpful, but I think also being really adaptable, um, and not just navigating personalities, but, um, specifically to, to your question, I think, um, being adaptive to the way things unfold and, um, the, the better we can be at that, I think it makes things a lot easier. Let me tell you, it's not easy for me. I, I don't say this as a point of expertise, I say it because, you know, if, if it's, you know, if there's students out there listening, it's only because I'm a few steps ahead. Um, and those are, that's a valuable lesson that I've, that I've certainly learned, you know, over the past few years. Mm-hmm. Pam, I always have such a great time with you. Thank you so much for joining us on Double Read Dish. This was a blast. Guys, this is the best. I've listened to so many of these podcasts and, uh, and I'm just, I'm, I can't believe I get to be on one. I'm so excited. Really, thank you both. Thank you both so much. Hey, everyone. We hope you enjoyed that episode. Thank you so much for joining us for another Double Read Dish, Double Read Fest. What a weirdo I am. Follow us on social media. Like, rate, and review. We love you. Galit, who's on the next episode? (laughs) We have the joy of talking with bassoonist Evan Kuhlman of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. Go make reads.